I'll invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. So this week and next week, uh, to finish up chapter 5, <clears throat> uh, this in this uh, section in which Jesus is teaching us about true righteousness, and then in chapter 6, he'll begin to instruct us about the appropriate way to practice said righteousness. Um, so we have two weeks left here in chapter 5. Today we're going to be looking at verses 38 to 42. So I'll invite you to read that with me. Matthew 5, starting in verse 38. This is the word of our Lord Jesus. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. If you recall, Jesus has said already in this Sermon on the Mount that he has not come to abolish or lessen the law. In fact, in verse 20, he revealed that it was the scribes and Pharisees, the main teachers and leaders of the day, they were the ones who actually possessed a low view of the law and as a result had a, uh, an inadequate and incorrect concept of righteousness. Christ's disciples, on the other hand, kingdom citizens, those who possess the Spirit of God, have been born again, are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ's disciples are those who, by contrast, hunger and thirst for righteousness, true righteousness. And so Jesus, since verse 21, has now been explaining to us the nature of true righteousness. And as we have seen, righteousness is not something that is simply concerned with some external matters, nor is it merely concerned with the letter of the law, as if we say, well, I've never actually murdered anybody, so I'm obviously a righteous person. Righteousness is very concerned with the inner man, the heart, the thoughts, the attitude, and it is concerned with the spirit of the law. So Jesus is illustrating this by looking at six different ways from verse 21 through to the end of chapter 5, Six different areas where the law was wrongly understood and then incorrectly and wrongly taught in the first century. And we come now to an Old Testament text, to an Old Testament teaching about justice that was being perverted and used as a cover for selfishness and as a cover for a vengeful spirit. So as we've been doing the last couple of weeks, I want to take a couple minutes and try to briefly explain the Old Testament teaching about this and then, and then look a little more at the corruption of Jesus' day before we get into uh, really what Jesus says about uh, turning the other cheek and so on. So, so he begins here, Jesus does, quoting the Old Testament scripture that was being abused. It says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, this phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it's not even a full verse, uh, but this, these words we do find in three different places in the Old Testament. Exodus 21, 24. We also see it in Leviticus 24 and Deuteronomy 19, verse 21. 
And in those places, it is teaching a fundamental principle of justice for the nation of Israel's judicial laws. It provided this principle of justice, a formula for punishing those who commit wrong. So this, this concept, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, it sometimes goes by its Latin name, lex talionis, or law of retaliation. We might also speak of this as retributive justice. And the idea behind it is that when one commits a crime, there is to be a penalty for that, and that penalty should be proportionate. It is to match the crime that is committed. We still have this, uh, at least it ought to be practiced today. It is a fundamental principle of justice that does undergird our law. Uh, whether or not that is carried out consistently is another matter. But this is common. And in fact, uh, one example to give you of, of this uh, eye for an eye from Scripture actually precedes uh, Mount Sinai. So it is not just part of the Mosaic Covenant. We see it in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, right after the flood, part of the Noahic Covenant, and God is addressing Noah. And we find there that if, you, if a man spills another man's blood, then by man shall your blood be spilled. In other words, if you murder somebody, then you forfeit your right to life. Justice says you should be put to death if you are indeed found to be guilty you indeed are guilty. And this principle is taught in a number of places in the Old Testament, and it's applied to a number of situations, this whole idea of uh, a just retribution. In fact, why don't, if you want, flip to Exodus chapter 21. I'm just going to read a few verses from there. Just give you one of the places we find this. Exodus 21, starting in verse 22, it says, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And then it goes on there in that chapter to continue to work out this principle in different scenarios and situations. If an ox gores somebody, what do you do? Well, that's different if it's a first time versus it's a second time offense. The owner should know better, hasn't locked him up, etc. Uh, there's different crimes or different punishments depending on the crime. And so this whole concept of retributive justice is summarized with these words, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And this principle of justice has a couple of effects to it. So first of all, it assured that punishment would not be too excessive. There is an innate human desire that when someone wrongs or hurts us, let's say genuinely so, we want it turned back upon them tenfold. Right? We tend to, somebody hits us, we want to see them be pounded. Right? If somebody hurts us, we want to see them come to financial ruin. We want to see them be undone. This is very, very common. And this principle restrains that impulse to go over the top. However, this also assures that another 
corruption, injustice that often occurs. This, penalty, this, this concept, eye for an eye, also assures that there will indeed be a penalty. It tells us there ought to be a penalty. So this other abuse we might find, one is to go over the top and be excessive. The other is to just let it go and not punish crime at all or to not do it appropriately or enough. In Leviticus 19, verse 21, when the eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth principle is stated, it is prefaced with this. It says, Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and so on. In other words, he's saying, You shall follow through with this. You should not pity somebody. This is a matter of justice. When justice is to be served, you ought to follow through. That's what the Lord is teaching there in Leviticus 19.21. So it guards against two things. Not punishing and also excessive punishing. It ought to, the punishment ought to fit the crime committed. Third thing worth noting as we think about this principle of, of justice. And as we find it in the Old Testament in particular and in Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy. This was not something that was simply to be practiced by every single individual. It is in the context of Israel's judicial system. And so this involved courts, witnesses, and judges. Even in the couple of verses we read from Exodus 21, it talked about judges determining the price to be paid. It involved courts and judges and witnesses, not simply individuals making these determinations and then running off and seeking retribution for them. So it's a principle of justice for society. It is given after the flood to Noah. I think that tells us this is a universal principle. It is then given within the Mosaic Covenant for Israel to govern their laws and their justice system. So that's just very briefly an overview of the Old Testament teaching, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But in the context of Matthew chapter 5, I think it is clear that this principle was being seized upon to justify self-assertion and personal vengeance. People were able to justify such selfish and vengeful, vengeful attitudes and behavior because they believed it to be a matter of justice. Justice says, the Bible says, eye for an eye. Therefore, if you insult me, justice says, I insult you back. You hurt me, I am going to hurt you back. Payback time, the Bible says so. Eye for an eye. And if this, of course, is a common way people adapt to life in a fallen world, in which we face evil being done to us on varying levels and degrees every single day. And people adopt this kind of mindset. This kind of attitude. We promote me at all costs. Me at every turn. I have to look out for number one. No one else is looking out for me. I take up my cause. You hurt me, I'm coming for you. In everything. Every wrong against us demands a redress. Demands payback. So we find it's common. People hold grudges and they do so often over all kinds of minor things. They want harm done to others, often over trivial things. And if we can have this attitude and pr promote ourselves, self-assertion, if we can 
have this spirit of vengeance upon everyone who wrongs us. And if we can do this and call it justice, then we will end up thinking ourselves to be righteous. Right? I'm just doing justice here. Just doing what justice demands. This is a righteous pursuit of mine. It's right for me to get you back because of what you've done to me. It's fair. And I think it's this kind of attitude, this kind of spirit that Jesus is responding to here. This approach was thought to be demanded by the Old Testament. Right? The scriptures say eye for an eye. So we're going to carry this through everywhere to every matter. But in fact, scriptures were being abused and they were being used in this way to cover for fleshly desires. And so it was really meant by this principle of justice, which was really meant, at least in part, as I said, to restrain man's desire for retribution, was ironically being used to encourage it in virtually every area of life, in everything. So if that's not the right way to approach this world, if we're not to be seeking and demanding eye for an eye and absolutely everything at every turn, what is to be our attitude? We're still in this world. People, evil people still encroach upon you. You still have to deal with being genuinely wronged by other people. And how do you handle this? How do we handle man's evil against us? Not just talking big things, but even in maybe lesser, minor, day-to-day matters. What is to be our attitude? What is true righteousness in these things? And Jesus' answer to us, I would suggest is surprising. Now, if you've read this a lot, you maybe won't actually be surprised when you read the words. But if we think about it, I think it is surprising and perhaps even a little bit shocking. It's an answer that causes us to have to really think about what is he getting at here? What does he really mean by these words? And so I want to try to just state it clearly here, what I think Jesus is getting at in the rest of our passage. And then we'll work it out and hopefully see it more clearly as we go. But as we consider various offenses and evil grievances that are committed against us, Jesus here calls us, to die to ourselves and to entirely submit our cause, submit ourselves to the Lord. In the midst of an evil world, we are called to self-denial. That's what Jesus is calling us to, to submit ourselves and our cause ultimately to the Lord in everything. In the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven, self and self-interest including even my own legitimate rights, are not king. Jesus takes this opportunity to expose the selfishness that was causing those in his day to abuse this principle of justice. And Jesus uses this as an opportunity to point point them and us towards self-denial. Part of the reason they have this attitude in everything, demanding justice in everything and so on, is they, they, they have not denied themselves, taken up their cross, and followed the Lord Jesus. They are still ultimately just being selfish. And so Jesus is getting to the root of it, 
which I hope we will see clearly. So what I think he's getting at here is what we find very explicitly stated elsewhere. For example, in Matthew 16, 24, where Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, so if anyone would come after me, Jesus says, and be my disciple. So remember, in, in Matthew 5, he is declaring to us the character of kingdom citizens, of his disciples. He's teaching us the, the true righteousness that we are to hunger and thirst after. Later on in chapter 16, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So underwriting this, and what we find in in Matthew 5 here, verses 38 to 42, is that the disciple of Christ does not belong to himself. As a disciple of the Lord Jesus, you are the slave of another. We are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. We have been bought with a price. We are not our own. We belong to our Lord. This is objectively true for the one who is placing their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We belong to him. That is positionally true. But in our lifetime and in the process of sanctification, this is how we are to reckon ourselves. We are to think of ourselves in this way. This is true. We belong to the Lord. This is how we ought to live out our days with this mindset and understanding and war against our flesh that would exert and put ourself at the center of all things. And this, of course, will serve us greatly in everything, but certainly as we face various hardships and injustices and various types of wickedness that comes against us from the hands of our fellow man. We are to entrust ourselves into the hand of our Lord to whom we belong, to entrust our lives and our causes to him. They are in his hands. We are to entrust them to the one to whom all things belong, including something like vengeance. We know the scriptures tell us vengeance is the Lord's. So Jesus then uses some illustrations here to point us to different areas of self-denial. And so I want us to walk through these and I'm going to lump them into three categories. Jesus first points us to self-denial in matters of personal offense and humiliation. Self-denial in matters of personal offense and humiliation. So verse 39 says, But I say to you, do not resist the evil one or the one who is evil, But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Again, Jesus' response here is surprising and perhaps shocking. Some people are claiming eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil. Well, that ought to stop you dead in your tracks. How can that possibly be? You're not to resist the one who is evil. Essentially, he's saying here, don't fight back. Don't oppose them. Leave them be. The word resist says here, do not resist the one who is evil. The word resist might be a touch weaker than what is intended by the Greek word. It is saying don't oppose them or don't set yourself against them in opposition. 
However, this is really still not what we want to hear and maybe not what we expect to hear. Doesn't holiness matter? Doesn't that imply some opposition of some kind to evil and to those who are purveyors of evil? Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil. This is then followed by four illustrations. Instead of fighting back, Jesus says, do the following four things. First is, anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, before we get to this matter of turning the other cheek, we are again confronted here with this question of how literal ought we to understand Jesus' teaching here. When he says, do not resist the evil one, period, at all, ever, in any circumstance, in any way. Well, we've seen this kind of question before as we've gone through this Sermon on the Mount. We talked about it last week as Jesus talks about not taking oaths. This question of how literal to take this. And so again, I just want to maybe put a bracket here on the sermon and just think about this again and just make four points about this whole idea of of taking it literally and so on. So the first is that consistency with the rest of the Bible, which I would remind you is an important hermeneutical principle. It's an important principle for you to read your Bible well and to read it properly is it ought to be, there ought to be consistency to your understanding of the Bible, not contradicting other parts of it and so on. So consistency with the Bible reveals that this is not to be pressed too literally. So we find in other places resisting evil. Jesus rebuked the guard that struck him before the high priest in John 18, 23. Stephen confronted and rebuked the wicked men who were about to stone him in Acts chapter 7. Paul reasoned with evil men not to do various types of evil, including in Acts 14, not to worship him. He was trying to stop them from doing that evil, wicked deed. Those are all forms of opposing evil. It happens when we preach the law to people. It reveals, exposes sinfulness. It opposes it. It restrains it even. Again, we talked about this back when we looked at being salt and light in the world. Salt has a preservative effect. It preserves the putrefaction or putrefaction. It, 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 it preserves... As Christians, we are those who our presence preserves just the straight descent off the cliff into just utter and total sin in the world. That's part of our effect in the world. That's a form of opposing what is evil. So this is not outlawing all forms of resisting and opposing evil men. Again, we think of those who fled in the scriptures and acts under persecution. That's a point. That's not mere passivity. That's responding and opposing and avoiding evil. Paul appealed to Roman law as well to get away from mobs. So I think consistency with the rest of the Bible says we ought to not take this in an overly literal fashion. Secondly, this text is addressing kingdom citizens in our personal relations. This is not here a blueprint for society. This is not a blueprint for civil magistrates, for government authorities. We're told in Romans 13 that such are ministers of God who wield the sword, according to Romans 13. And they ought to do this by punishing what is evil and upholding what is good. For magistrates, eye for an eye is an appropriate 
part of their function. Again, it was not just part of the Mosaic law. We see it even before the law of Moses in the time of Noah. Eye for an eye is a good principle when it comes to justice in a society. And so Christians who serve as civil magistrates, including police, they're to use that sword, but they're to use it in a just manner, uprightly. So this is not a text addressing whether a Christian can or should join a military or a police force. It sometimes gets used that way, but that's not what this is doing. Again, consistency with the scriptures reveal that eye for an eye, that principle, has a right purpose and a right place. Thirdly, just considering here this matter of literalism, the context here is constructing, instructing us about the heart of true righteousness. To simply take these statements with a hard literalism would be to miss the greater point Jesus is making. If all we have to do, think about it, if all we have to do in this matter to be truly righteous is just purely be passive in the face of evil men, there's a sense in which that's not terribly difficult, is it? We just sit there and do absolutely nothing, say nothing, and but behold, righteous. I, I, I just that that is not what Jesus is getting at here. <clears throat> Jesus is not simply creating here four new laws in place of the old law of retribution. And then, fourthly, lastly, just thinking about this literalism, denying that everything said here is to be taken with a strict literalism doesn't mean that we don't take it seriously. That's often what's insinuated. Well, you don't take the Bible seriously, or you're not taking it at face value or something of that sort. Well, we don't literally cut our hands off when we sin with them, but we take Jesus' warning very seriously, do we not? From verse 30, when he speaks of this, we take it with deadly seriousness. And so the, so the same is, is the case here. Jesus is teaching us something much harder and much more glorious than simply being passive in the face of evil, but a self-denial. And so let's, let's continue here. Again, Jesus is pointing us to self-denial in matters of personal offense and humiliation. Let's look at verse 39 again. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So slap on the right cheek would typically, for someone who's right-handed, that would be a backhanded slap. If I was to get you on the right cheek with my right hand, that's what it would require. This was the way a person was disgraced and publicly humiliated. This was not speaking of a violent assault by a robber intent on murdering you or something like that, but it is humiliation. It's still physical. It's still a physical assault. In fact, it was a very dishonoring experience. It was a shaming. It was also... As I understand it, one of the final acts they performed when they would remove a person from synagogue, which would have happened to many early Jewish Christians. You're removed from the synagogue and it's finalized with this backhand slap. It's insulting, it's humiliating. 
It's not right. It's unjust. Now, because Jesus is talking about our response to one who is evil in these verses, I'm assuming that in these scenarios, the act is being performed unjustly. That is, the assumption we should make is that you don't deserve these things that are happening to you. That the person in this situation who's been slapped on the right cheek didn't deserve that slap. There are people who do things that are worthy of public shame, but that's not what this is talking about. This is something that is performed by an evil person here. It's assuming you don't deserve public scorn. And this is precisely the kind of thing that makes a person become furious. Because it's a significant offense that is entirely unwarranted and unjust. And when we have the cause of God on our side, we might want to rage all the more about this injustice. It's not only they've wronged me, this is against God's revealed will. This is against what is right in the universe. The Christian tossed from the synagogue with a backhanded slap might be filled with scorn and anger at his fellow men. That self starts to rise up. I don't deserve this. And how easily that then gets cloaked in righteousness. Really, it's, I don't deserve this, they've offended me. But we cloak it then in, this is somehow a righteous indignation. Because it's objectively wrong. Jesus says here, turn to him the other cheek also. He says, don't swing back, don't scream back. We could feel justified in firing back at them and swinging back at them. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Again, I don't think this is here ruling out any and all use of force to restrain somebody. For example, this is not addressing a woman who's being abused over and over again by a man. Wait, we, I would never counsel somebody. You just got to keep turning the other cheek. There's nothing you can do about it. Or a, a young person being abused by a wicked father. Just counsel them. Just, just keep on letting them hit you over and over again. Don't seek any help. Right Again, as we think about how we would apply these laws and commands, think about Jesus' words when he is confronting the, the really tight way that the Pharisees would, at- would interpret uh, the Sabbath day laws. And he's reminding them, saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Right? Clearly, if someone's starving, you're going to let them take some grain and make some food and eat it, right? That's not a, actually a violation of the intention of the Sabbath commandment. So we do not take this turning the other cheek example here and press it to everybody who is being assaulted in every single conceivable manner. The Bible in other places authorizes self-defense. Exodus 22, verse 2. One place. But again, let us not miss what is being said here. We should not hear that and think, oh, phew, not, not hyper-literalism here, and then miss what Jesus is saying. In the face of even grievous and public insult, Christ's people are to be self-controlled and able to absorb repeated blows in this manner. This is describing one who understands that God is the judge of all. He is the one who sees all, 
person who turns the other cheek is satisfied to let the Lord be the judge of this. Understands that one day this person will give an account. This person understands how much they've been forgiven by Almighty God. This is describing one who is filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the fruit of the Spirit, such that it doesn't go away in the moment that insult and humiliation come. It's not just gentleness and mercy at some times, but then as soon as I'm wronged, I flip a switch and now it's justice, baby. You get what's coming to you because you've offended me. This is one who is self-denying. So again, there will be a time when it's appropriate to defend oneself, perhaps in public, from public shame or humiliation or from hurt. But notice, even if that's the case, Notice the attitude that would still prevail. This spirit being described here is still to be ours. We're not those who are simply trying to hit back, simply to protect my own honor with some sort of short-sightedness. It would mean doing these things with a profoundly different attitude from the one who is desiring vengeance. We have different and higher purposes and values with our lives. Jesus calls us to self-denial in matters of personal offense and humiliation. Secondly, he calls us to self-denial in matters of personal rights and entitlements. In matters of personal rights and entitlements. Verse 40, And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, Let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. So again, we have evil actors, evil people. In verse 1, the evil actor is suing you for your tunic. That is that base layer garment that's next to the skin. Perhaps the person sees this as a fitting retribution for whatever the perceived offense is. Again, I think the assumption here is that you're innocent in the matter. And yet Jesus says, let him have your cloak as well. The cloak was the heavier, larger, more expensive, and more important in many ways, outer garment. Rather than saying, fight this thing out in court, and when you win, then take him to task for wasting your time and so on. Rather, Jesus says, give him the cloak as well. And in fact, it's more than just a loss of something expensive and important, but it involves handing over something that was your inalienable, God-given right to possess. I don't think anyone has the right to take your property. I think that's consistent with Scripture. But the cloak might sound bold to call it an inalienable, God-given right, but I think that's precisely what we find in the book of Exodus. Chapter 22, verse 26 Here's what it says. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. And it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. God says, even if your neighbor's cloak is put up as a pledge, 
and you therefore have some right, some right to possess it, you shall not keep it for the night, he says here. It is his cloak. It is his to keep him warm. It is important to him. He has every right to it. You will not keep it, even if he's putting it up as a pledge for something else he owes you or is going to do to you, for you. You will not deprive him of it. That's what Exodus 22 teaches. And yet here, Jesus says, go ahead. He wants your tunic, hand him that cloak as well. And if we're just thinking in terms of justice, we might wonder what manner of injustice is this suggesting to us? This is one reason I don't think that Jesus is simply teaching us here how to resolve a court case in any and every circumstance. Again, I think the point is that true righteousness involves holding loosely to what we are rightfully entitled to, holding loosely to our own rights and goods such that we are willing to lay them aside. We are prepared to set them aside when it seems wise. We might wonder when would it seem wise? I think there's various reasons, various seasons, times when we might think so. Perhaps we want to display our reasonableness to somebody. We find ourselves in a dispute. This is not where we want to be. We would like to show them we're not out to get them or anything of that sort. And so we want to lay down a particular right or give something over that we could rightfully hang on to in order to demonstrate our reasonableness, to demonstrate our motives. Perhaps it's to show love to an enemy, to heap coals upon their heads in so doing. Maybe it is simply to end a dispute. Maybe we give up a right because we have more important matters to attend to. There are many good causes, many rights worth defending. But you have limited times, you have mouths to feed perhaps, and you have a hierarchy of values. So perhaps you'll lay one down because you are busy with other things, good things, things of the Lord. Maybe you'll lay down a right or many of your rights for the sake of the gospel. This is very common and it's very good motive. Hear me, when I say laying down rights, I'm not talking about these things as if they're no big deal. I don't think people have the right to override what I would say God has given you a right to. And yet we know it happens. Many lay down the rights for the sake of the gospel. You have a right to certain liberties. You could perhaps move to where those liberties might be better honored. But maybe you'll choose to stay put and lay those rights down so that there continues to be gospel witness. You can think of many missionaries, many of the biographies you so love of Christian missionaries. They went to a place where they knew those rights would be violated. And they went willingly. Again, this is not every single person has gone and done this. But many have gone willingly. Laying aside those rights. I belong to my Lord. There's a mission here that's greater than me getting my just desserts as I see it and understand it on this earth and maybe even my legitimate rights. The attitude here is I think what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You think about the believers that were suing one another, taking each other to court in front of unbelievers. And Paul is 
showing them how off they are here. He says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? We have a greater purpose. Saying this is, this is dragging Christ's name through the mud. Take one on the chin here for a moment for a greater cause and purpose. I think that's the attitude Jesus is pointing us towards. There are times we can, we can, we can just be wronged. Again, we know the Lord sees, knows all and will judge all. Verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This is talking about the right of a Roman soldier to requisition people to carry things for them up to one Roman mile. The word translated here as forces you to go, forces. It's used only one other time to refer to Simon of Cyrene when he was forced to carry Jesus' cross. It's an example of this. He was requisitioned to carry the cross. A Roman soldier could commandeer not just your stuff, but you. Think about it. You have a right before God to earn a living. It's right and good to do that for your family. You're in the midst of your busy day. Here's a Roman soldier. You, carry this for me a mile. Let's go. This is way beyond the role and scope of the governing authorities, according to Romans 13. It is very much an overreach. They really don't have a right to demand that, to make such a law. And yet, there it was. Think about, to a Jew with even a modest sense of patriotism, let alone the zealots of the day, how offensive this would be to have these invaders, these Romans, whom you want out telling you carry this, interrupting your day, etc. And yet Jesus says, go the second mile. Clearly, the Christian is not to get bent out of shape over every government overstep. This doesn't mean that that overstep, that overreach is right. It doesn't mean it's not, even in some cases, a significant overreach. But what is the attitude, the spirit here that Jesus is calling you to? This is moving us away from fighting and complaining about every single overreach and submitting only out of spite to these things. Again, we have a purpose to our lives. We understand the sovereignty of our God. And these things occur to us under his sovereignty. I'm not saying it makes it right. But how do we respond? Again, I don't think this is laying down a rule that you can never, in any sense or in any way, oppose. You, we see examples of using law, for example, in order to protect us, protect Christians. So Paul appeals to Caesar. He flees for refuge, ironically, from one group of authorities, one group of people to another, to the Romans, where he's kind of protected. And he eventually appeals to Caesar. He cites Roman law when he's being whipped without 
having been found guilty as a Roman citizen, they were not allowed to do that. He appeals to the laws of their land. And of course, we would acknowledge various degrees of overreach. Walking two miles is inconvenient, and it might be extremely inconvenient in some cases. Whereas something like eroding parental rights, the state seeking to take upon your rights as a parent upon themselves, well, that's, a, I would suggest, a more serious overreach. But again, even so, when it's time to engage on such issues, with what spirit are we to do it with? Is it to be, how dare you come against me? That might be true. They might be incredibly wrong. But I think this is ruling out that kind of perspective. Even in the case of Paul, when he does appeal to different laws and Caesar and so on, we don't see that kind of selfish, me first, self-assertion. That's not his attitude. Rather, this is commending to us a calm humility, conscious of the fact that this, there's, this is about much more than just me and my well-being. So self-denial in a fallen world is, extends to personal rights and entitlements. And then very briefly, the last thing here, self-denial in matters of personal property and wealth. So he ends us on an easy note here. He says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Again, this is one that I think if pressed too literally would turn this instruction into absurdity, really. Such a person would have to, get, once people catch on, such people would have to give away all that they have and then find themselves in the position of begging. Such a man would then obviously be failing to provide for his family, which the Bible also condemns to us. But again, this doesn't mean, oh, okay, good. And we just breathe a sigh of relief and move on. The Lord is, again, showing us, teaching us, that part of self-denial is holding loosely to our own money even the money that we have worked hard for and have rightly earned that is justly ours to be kept. Willing to part with it. Again, not having that selfish perspective, even with our own money, our own goods, possessions. No, you can't have this. No, you cannot borrow from me. I'm not loaning this to you. It's mine. And this is where I think it becomes even clearer that this whole section is driving at the issue of self-denial. Because here it's not as clear that the action is done by somebody who is evil. Right? If someone's trying to borrow or, or, or asking you for something, they, they may not be acting wickedly out of that. You could justly just say no. But Jesus is continuing to press the point of self-denial to say we should be prepared and ready and willing to, to give. He exhorts us to generosity there. For those who are in the kingdom of heaven, again, our true treasure is in heaven. We don't store up treasures on earth. 
We hold very loosely to these things that moth and rust can destroy. And we do see this in the book of Acts. If you think about the early church with one another, they were very, very ready and prepared to sell property, excess goods, not store it up, but sell it and help out brothers and sisters who were in need. We also find in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, where the author is stirring up the faith of his readers. He says, for you had compassion on those in prison. He's talking about these former days. They're struggling now. They're tempted to return to Judaism. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. I think that's the spirit Jesus is pointing us toward. Not just you had your goods plundered, but he says you joyfully accepted it. Doesn't mean it was right for a moment. They joyfully accepted it since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What is behind all of this and part of our self-denial is that we are not living for the here and now. It is this, as we often say, this pilgrimage mentality that this world is not our ultimate home. And so when we are confronted by evil, when we are treated unjustly and badly, we don't have to lose ourselves in, in fret and anxiety and anger about it and self-assert ourselves to try and gain that back. To live with this tit-for-tat in every single matter. We are not those who are living our best lives now. We are deferring that to the age to come. And so all, all of this demands that we keep the cross and we keep, the, and we keep eternity in view. Christ has come to die for your sins. If you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, he came to do that for you, to take the penalty your sins deserve upon you, to satisfy the wrath of God for those sins you have committed, that you might not come under judgment, but might become a child of God, an heir, a co-heir with Christ. He raised from the dead that that sacrifice might be acceptable so that you might be raised to walk in newness of life and so that one day you might be raised with a body like his, imperishable, forever to dwell with the Lord Jesus, with our triune God and with his people that he has likewise redeemed from all of time, from all around the world. This is the end to which we are headed. This is what we live in light of even now. And so we then apply this to the wrongs that we face. We apply this to the tyranny that we sit under, whatever scale that happens to be on today or tomorrow or in years to come. I, again, I do not think this is saying we just simply are passive and say nothing and never object. But this fundamentally is altering the attitude we go into this with, the perspective we do this with, and the battles we will choose to fight. True righteousness is not found in exacting justice for every single wrong committed against us. That's not our job. We submit that to the Lord and we do that joyfully and gladly. 
True righteousness is found in self-denial, which involves understanding, believing that we belong not to ourselves, but we belong to our God. It involves living for our Lord, which is a much higher purpose, a much higher calling than living for ourselves. We serve at His interests, not our own. Our Lord Himself showed us the way. You remember Philippians, we spent much time there. Chapter 2, demonstrating to us humility, considering others more significant than yourselves. Jesus suffered unjustly. He taught us, did He not, that we will likewise be hated as He was hated. So it's good and right to soothe, salve the wounds that you have from other people's wrongs against you, whatever sphere that has come in. Understanding everyone answers to the Lord. And of course, understanding that you yourself will answer to the Lord for your own sins. And this is the very reason that you need the Lord Jesus Christ to be trusting him. And if you have been forgiven much, then we can dwell with patience amongst the unbelievers. We can most certainly and readily forgive those who ask for our forgiveness. The Christian life is described as carrying your cross for a reason. There will be unjust, injustice, injustice. There will be suffering in this way. Again, even as our Lord suffered very unjustly. And we don't switch in those moments to all of a sudden it's all about me and my rights. We don't baptize that kind of a language with language of justice. And so be wary of your flesh even when you're wronged. Even when your cause is just. Submit yourself to the Lord. Trust in His timing. Nothing escapes our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to delight in dying to ourself. We admit and acknowledge it is good and right to do that. Yet we also confess it is difficult for us. We do want justice. We want what's right. And yet, Father, we also know that this is a time of grace, a time in which the gospel goes forth, in which you <clears throat> publish good news to the nations. That unjust, wicked people, upon faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, can be saved and be forgiven. Father, we know that our understanding of what is right and wrong is often incorrect in itself. We need it to be conditioned by your word. And even then, we will not understand every situation. We will not know everything. We will not know what justice demands in every single moment, in every single situation. Father, I pray that you would just ease our 
any troubled spirits by wrongs that have been committed against them. Father, that we would not be filled with bitterness toward others, even toward those who've wronged us and never acknowledged it. Father, help us when we do speak out against that which is evil, to do so with courage and boldness, but also to do so with humility, remembering the gospel and publishing it as well to sinners. Father, where we need correction, bring it. I pray that it would be our delight to suffer for the name of Jesus. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We pray that you would encourage us, that we would remember the Lord Jesus Christ crucified for sinners, that we would take refuge every moment in what he has accomplished for us, and that we would pursue a life of self-denial and cross-carrying as those who are under your grace. Fill us with the fruit of your spirit in ever-increasing measure. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.